Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Hi everyone, welcome to our latest episode of Anthropotamus. Today's a good day. We have Dr. Aaron Stiles from the University of Nevada, Reno here with us today. For those who've been listening for a while, she was on our first episode. She typically studies Islamic law. But today we're going to be discussing her book. And I have to read it off my screen. <laughs> the Devil Sat on My Bed, Encounters with the Spirit World in Mormon, Utah. So thank you, Dr. Stiles, for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me back. So, I mean, we've literally been waiting at least two years for this book, right? We <laughs> mentioned it on the first episode, and I've been harassing her for two years. How's the book going? When's the book coming out? Um March 7th. Back <laughs> is out, but it's the paperback will be out March 7th. Kindle. Mm -hmm. The Kindle. The Kindle's version. out. Yeah, the Kindle's yeah. out. Too. Um so yes, it, it did come out two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Um and you know, we I have I'm a slow reader, so I'm I'm still reading it. <laughs> um but it's it's kind of one of the book is Let's just say, you know, you give a lot of examples in this book of people's stories and um, seeing spirits. And I'm trying to skim this book as fast as I can before this episode. But then I'm like, no, wait, I want to hear what he saw. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a lot of great stories where it's like you can't really skim it because you want to you want to read what mm -hmm. these experiences people had. Um, and. I mean, before I go on, before I'm going on these long tangents, <laughs> do, you want, do you have any comments before we start asking questions? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I was just say, I was just going to say, um, I I don't like skimming personally. I mean, I, I'll do it, but I, I prefer to just sit and read and just kind of go, you know, get really into it. Um, I picked it up initially. And I was reading through it and I had a bunch of other stuff that I needed to read and write papers and all this other thing. Right? So I made time for it and it wasn't enough time. I swear, every time I picked it up, I spent like 20, 30 minutes longer than I should have spent reading it. Last night, I was trying to get through a little more of it and I fell asleep in my office chair, like right here. <laughs> fell asleep reading the book. So, mm, uh, is that good very, or bad? I don't know. <laughs> it was very engrossing. It was like, okay. I think it was uh, like 12 a.m. or 12.30 a.m. when I finally you know, decided, yeah, I'm putting it down. I got up at, at like 5.30 yesterday so it was a long day and I, I chose to finish the day with it because it was that good so um, great glad yeah. you liked it I definitely did <laughs> <laughs> I mean it is really I'm a little disappointed I have the Kindle version because I, I mean I don't like reading off a screen and this is really a book where it's like you want to take the book and go sit in a coffee shop and just mind your business with your cup of coffee and read a book um so I recommend just buying the book and not get the Kindle. No offense to Amazon, but um, it's not the it's not the thing. <laughs> I'm probably gonna get the the paperback at, at the very least so that I can put it on the shelf and say, "Hey, I read that." <laughs> it'll be my it'll be my trophy. <laughs> great, great. Um, so I mean, you start the book off discussing your childhood. I mean, you yourself are not Mormon, um, yeah. and typically you study Islamic law. <laughs> Um, but your your childhood upbringing really uh, seemed really, I mean, you discuss that and the influence on this book. I mean, do you feel like growing up within the Mormon community influenced your faith or religious perspective in any way, even though you were not Mormon? Um, yeah, I think so. I think that, well, I might like, might take your question and change it a little bit. I think, yeah, yeah so I did grow up in an overwhelmingly Mormon or Latter-day Saint environment in a little town in Cache Valley, Utah, and my family wasn't. We went to Episcopal Church. Um, but yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's as an anthropologist, it's I think I think definitely it 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 was one of the main reasons I was interested in studying the anthropology of religion, because you know, my friends and I would talk about religion all the time. It was just something, you know, it was it's, it was it was a major part of everybody's life. And even you know, even my family, I would not say was super religious at all, but we went to church and, um, and having a religious identity was very important. So I remember, you know, that was, that was something I always talked about with my friends and that was, 
and I, I, you know, and they'd say, well, if you aren't Mormon, what are you? And I'd say Episcopalian. And they'd say, oh, Presbyterian. It's like, no, no, Presbyterian <laughs> is different, Episcopalian. And then they'd ask about our church and I'd kind of describe it. And it was, you know, and, and that people would come with, to church with me sometimes, especially on Christmas Eve. It's very popular since um, Latter-day Saints don't have a Christmas Eve mass. So that was always fun. And my mother used to, my mother actually used to complain because she would say, ah, I have to get to church so early on Christmas Eve because all the Mormons are coming and taking up all the pews. So they just, cause it was, you know, it was a beautiful spectacles, <laughs> incense and candles and robes. And it's, it's lovely. It's very different from a, um, a Latter-day Saint service. But I think that just that interest in religion as a part of people's lives and a part of people's identities, I'm sure in part came from growing up in that community. And I remember going, I'm going to college. I went to college in North Carolina, um, and I do remember suddenly, like, it wasn't, no one cared what religion you were. And we didn't really talk about, it. you know, it was just that, like, oh, wow, this isn't a subject of conversation all the time for, <laughs> for other people. Um, so I think that, I'm not sure exactly, Ashley, what, if I'm understanding your question the way you intended, but I think it definitely helped generate my interest in the anthropology of religion. And I knew when I started college, I was pretty sure I wanted to major in anthropology, but I was also very interested in religious studies. I was interested in political science for a while until I took a class in political science. And that was it's a good class, but that was enough of that for me. So yeah, so I kind of went back and forth between being a major in cultural anthropology. My At my university, there were separate departments for cultural and for biological anthropology. And then some semesters I was a religious studies major, and then I finally uh, settled on uh, anthropology. But I think, but always with an interest in the anthropology of religion. And so I think that definitely came out of growing up in this environment where religion was such an overwhelmingly present part of everybody's lives. Um, and, you know, either whether you were in Mormon church or outside of it, it was just always a subject of conversation. So I, I have a question and, and you know, because, because, um, your your book is it's largely like it, it's that it seems like it's about the intersection between religion and spiritualism and you know it, I I notice that there can be it seems like there's some some pretty big differences between the two uh, and, and just as you know a little bit of background growing up my family was religion was strange uh, on on my my dad's side it was very Catholic mm -hmm. my mom's side was a whole nother thing that I, I don't want to get into right now because it was very mixed bag mm -hmm. um but the the net result was um the religious experience that I had growing up was kind of more amalgamized into a a, a more you know life is spiritual approach than religion as you know taught through through church or through the 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 bible or something like that um in your experience when you were growing or when you were when you were researching for this book did you notice a a large gap between spiritual life and religious teaching no not at all on the contrary not at all that's i mean i think one of the points that i tried to make in writing the book is that this, you know, these encounters with spirits is really the core of, of, of religious practice in some ways and religious understanding. There's a one fellow I interview in the book, he's a high school seminary teacher. Um, he had this wonderful phrase that uh, I think he called it, I can't remember, no, I can't remember my own book, but he had this wonderful phrase that he used that these spirit experiences are at the core, at the heart of what Latter-day Saints believe. And so I think that I wouldn't separate those at all. It's just, it's very much in line with teachings of the church, that there is a spirit, you know, that you, you before you enter the world as a mortal, you exist as a spirit child, you know, and everybody does. And then after your death, you are in the spirit world again, and you're, you know, moving toward eventual salvation, hopefully. Um, so I think that, yeah, no, I would say that I, I you know, they're, they're, they're one and the same in this context, that these experiences of the spirit world are very much in keeping with church teachings on, 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 
on the nature of existence for human beings that there is this spirit part of the spirit part of the human is essential and that's kind of where people came from and where they're going and that the mortal the mortal existence and and yeah and in latter-day saint teachings um and in you know theology in order to progress along the path to salvation, you have to have a mortal body. So becoming mortal by being born, you know, as a human to human family is necessary. You can't, it's kind of a stage in that, that path towards salvation. So, um, so, and, and, you know, one of the key, if not the key teaching of, of the Mormon church is that families are eternal. And so a lot of, you know, if people know anything about Mormon teachings, that's that's maybe one of the things that they know. And so this idea is that the family has the potential to be eternal, together eternally through being sealed in a Mormon temple, either in marriage or being sealed to the children. And so for people who experience these spirit visits, I think one of the, you know, kind of the 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 central lesson that I learned from them and how they interpreted these experiences. And that's what I'm most interested in the book in is as how people who have had these spirit encounters understand them and explain them. Um, so in the key, kind of the key lesson I take from people who've had these experiences that, is that they, for them, they confirm the reality of that idea of the eternal family, that if you have say that, you know, the spirit of your deceased grandfather visit or the spirit of a future child visit you, it's, it's, it's a very special thing. And it's, it's interpreted and understood as kind of a confirmation that, okay, the family is eternal. Um, we existed before the mortal existence, and we're going to exist and stay together, hopefully after the mortal existence. So did I answer your question, Les? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's it's led some other some other questions, but I, uh, I'll I'll let uh, Ashley take sure. the reins for a moment um, so I can think about them. Okay. I I have a similar issue because I feel like there's just so much I'm still I, I there's there was not enough time to process the book, <laughs> and I feel like I have a lot of mixed things going on in my head. It's making it difficult to make questions. But before we move on, because I I don't know anything about Mormonism. Whenever they come knocking on my door, I don't answer the door. <laughs> um, um, but can you, I mean, can you explain a little bit, um, the differences between Mormonism and let's say more mainstream Christian sure. sects? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. So, um, most Mormons would call themselves Christians. And so I, you know, it, I, 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 some scholars have debated, well, are they Christians? Are they something else? I certainly think of them as part of the broader Christian family, because that's how, you know, Mormons identify themselves and they share a lot with other uh, Christian teachings. However, there are some really significant differences. So for Latter-day Saints, and that is, that's so, I should probably, the, the preferred term now is Latter-day Saint rather than Mormon, but a lot of people use Mormon colloquially. So I'm going to go back and forth between those. Um, but yeah, so one of the key differences is a scriptural difference. So Mormons recognize, you know, the same scriptures other Christians do. So the, the you know, the Old Testament, the New Testament, but they also have a book called the Book of Mormon that is, um, that Mormons believe was revealed, um, was revealed to to Joseph Smith, who was considered the first prophet in the Mormon tradition. There are continuing prophets until this day, um, who are the president of the church. And the Book of Mormon accounts for tells stories about Jesus' visit to the Americas, and so it's really, really different from. And so it has a. It's. It's. I am not an expert on the Book of Mormon, so I mean, I. So I'm not gonna. I'm not. I'm not gonna claim any authority in 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 summarizing it or anything like that. But basically, it's an account of Jesus' visit to the Americas and various peoples in the Americas. So that is very, very different from other Christian sects and other Christian denominations because other Christians don't recognize you know, don't, don't share the Book of Mormon, don't, you know, don't have stories or accounts that they, that they, you know, that they, they're part of, that are part of their um, tradition about Jesus visiting peoples in the new world. So, or the so-called new world, I should say. So that's probably the key difference um, in terms of, in terms of, of, scripture and teachings there are other there's other you know in terms of recognizing you know the importance of jesus um importance of jesus you know believing jesus is the son of god the crucifixion all of that very similar 
um, of course, to other Christians. Um, but that, you know, that additional scripture, the Book of Mormon, and the recognition that, you know, Joseph Smith was a prophet who was coming to, you know, bring this kind of, you know, kind of, yes, in, in a scholarly sense, we'd say a new religion, but a lot of, you know, from the, from the standpoint of people within such traditions, they don't really recognize it as a new religion, but kind of as a restored, you know, this restored true church. Um, so those things are really different. Certain teachings, they're theological tra traditions, teachings that are quite different as well in terms of understanding sort of the, the journey toward that salvation, that idea of the eternal family that I mentioned before is really quite different from other Christians. Um, the recognition among Latter-day Saints that, you know, that, that you need to, in order to in order to kind of achieve that goal of the eternal family, you need to get married or sealed in a temple on a special ceremony. So those things are quite different as well. But I think that, I mean, in terms of the spirit experiences, that's, it's, yeah, I, I'm, in this book, I'm really looking at them as part of the Latter-day Saint tradition and with, with respect to teachings in the Latter-day Saint church, right, and cultural, um, cultural norms, et cetera, in, in the part of, in northern Utah, where I did most of the research. Um, but of course, as you know, as anthropologists, spirit experiences are super common the world over, more common than not. Um, and when I was working on this project, I occasionally had, you know, people would ask me about, oh, what are you working on? I'd tell them. And occasionally people would say, oh, well, I know, you know, I've had some experiences of spirits or my mom has or something. Um, but if they weren't part of the, you know, if they weren't part of of the tradition of, or they weren't Latter either, either active Latter-day Saints or former Latter-day Saints, I wasn't, you know, not no disrespect to their experiences, but that wasn't what I was researching. But it's, um, but I use that as an example to just to show that, yeah, even in, you know, even in the industrialized global north, these experiences are not uncommon. People have them, right? I think, and we have, you know, as you know, in anthropology, we have, we're very interested <laughs> in the anthropology of religion and all kinds of spirit experiences. And we have tons and tons of data on this, but most of it is from, places outside of the global north. So all kinds of wonderful ethnographic work on experiences of the spirit world throughout Africa, throughout um, um, many parts of, of, of the Caribbean and Latin America, throughout Asia. So, uh, but that's certainly not the only part, those are not the only parts of the world where people are having having meaningful encounters with um, with, 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 with the spirit world. Um, would you say that there is, because you because you did focus on Latter-day Saints in Northern Utah, would you say there was a difference between, um, I don't know if I want to use culture or practices in comparison to let's say someone in California or yeah. Nevada? Yeah, yeah, that's a really great question, Ashley. And I think yes, and I think there's a, there is room for a lot more research on that subject. So yes, I, yeah, so most of the research I did for this book was focusing on Cache Valley, the valley where I grew up in northern Utah. It's about 90 miles north of Salt Lake. Um, I also did some some interviews with people who grew up in other parts of northern Utah, kind of you know near Salt Lake or between Salt Lake and in Cache Valley. And then I also did a couple of interviews with people who are you know grew up as Mormons outside of um, outside of Utah, but then ended up living in Utah in northern Utah for some time for either for college or for a mission or they'd move there or or what have you and yeah that came up that 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 comes up fairly regularly that that the perception that Utah Mormon culture is really fairly distinct and there's something you know very Utah Mormony about it that is really different from the experiences of Latter-day Saints outside of Utah. And so um, so I don't focus on that a great deal in the book, but I acknowledge that that is something that people certainly recognize. So, um, and so, so, so I think that there's, yeah, and it's, I think that, you know, one of the things that we want to remember is that, you know, just like with other religious traditions, we don't want to think of all church members, all Mormons as interchangeable, identical, right? There are going to be cultural differences um, depending on the community. Also, of course, differences between, you know, between members of the church, even within one particular community. But yeah, there, I think there are definitely cultural differences. I know a lot of people have pointed them out to me in terms of say you grew up in California and you moved to Utah and kind of go through this culture shock at this overwhelmingly, um, you know, even as, 
a Mormon, this overwhelmingly Mormon environment that is, it's quite different from how you grew up elsewhere. So I think that's, um, that is, that is, that's a really good question. And in terms of, you know, with its relevance to this project, uh, that's one of the things that I, I, I use this idea about that I take from these other anthropologists, um, uh, this anthropologist Tanya Lerman and Julia Cassanidi, who use this idea of cultural kindling to talk about how, um, how people kind of interpret and understand what they refer to as uncanny experiences, right? So these, these, and you could put it, you know, experience of a spirit within that. And so I, you know, so why Cash Valley? Well, one, because this is where I grew up. And I remember hearing these stories when I grew up and thought it'd be really interesting to investigate anthropologically. But two, it's a, it's, it's an environment in which there's a very rich cultural kindling that prepares people for these kinds of experiences, right? I mean, one of the things that that's fairly notable is when I started doing this project, I mean, everybody I talked to without fail knew what I was talking about. There was not one person in, in this part of Utah who said, what, that's crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, every single person I talked to without fail said, yep, of course that happens regularly. And yes, I've had an experience or I haven't, but my mom has, or my grandma did, you know, so everybody either had had an experience themselves or knew somebody who had. So it was very much part of, you know, a religious life in the community. And so in that way, there's, you know, using this idea of cultural killing, people are used to hearing these stories, right? Um, and often people don't share personal experiences because they are often regarded as really quite sacred, especially if it's a benevolent spirit, if it's a malevolent spirit, that's something else. But um, so they're not, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's personal experiences are always shared, but enough are, and there's enough folklore surrounding these kinds of experiences that everybody's very familiar with this as something that happens, right? And so, so the kindling is there, all right? So that, that, that people are prepared for those kinds of experiences if they happen. So, and I think that that is something, I mean, and they do happen other in other Mormon contexts as well. Um, one thing, and I mean, I haven't done extensive research in other, you know, in California or Illinois or North Carolina or whatever, um, or, you know, elsewhere outside of the United States, but I think that the environment of this community in Northern Utah is such that there is a comfort level that, you know, if you have this kind of experience and you talk to somebody about it, people aren't going to say automatically, oh, she's crazy, right? What is going on with her? Of course, she didn't meet a spirit, right? Um, whereas maybe in other contexts, the recognition that they can happen is there, but that that comfort level that, you know, being able to share it on a community level or recognizing that this is, yeah, this is something that happens. Um, I'm not strange. I'm not going, you know, I'm not, <laughs> something's not wrong with me. So I think that that's a very long answer to your question, Ashley. <laughs> uh, so actually, I was going to ask a question about the cultural kindling part, but oh, you, sure. you, you pretty thoroughly answered it there. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, I, I know some people from uh, the Salt Lake area, so not quite the same area, but mm -hmm. um, Salt Lake area, Utah, who are not mormon but still have uh, a lot of very spiritual a, a lot of spiritual meeting stories stuff like mm. that right so it it seems like it's it's pretty common just you know throughout the uh the culture in that region yeah maybe that's really fascinating so i'd love to hear more about that i mean i didn't work with non-mormons at all on this right. project um so so that's yeah that's fascinating i'd love to hear more about that that if perhaps, you know, that would be something interesting to look at that if there are, you know, non-Mormons growing up in this environment where there is this recognition, these things happen are more likely to have those kinds of experience too. That's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. I know one of my, yeah, a friend of my mother's um, was quite interested in the project and she's, she's not Mormon and she'd had some really interesting experiences. And so, um, yeah, at this, you know, when I was doing this, I was like, well, I'm not, you know, I, I asked my mom, I, I don't, did I talk to her? I can't remember, but I said, you know, ask her mom if she's, if she interprets these experiences, because she'd lived in this part of Utah for a really long time. I said, does she interpret these experiences 
in a way that kind of reflects her immer long-term immersion in this very overwhelmingly Mormon cultural context. And mm -hmm. if, if so, I really do want to talk to her about these. But she was, the woman was adamant, no, 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 not at all. This has nothing to do with me living in Mormon land at all. Mm -hmm. So um, so for this project, that wasn't, I didn't you know pursue an interview with her, but that would be a super interesting project to do to do at some point, I think. Um, yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, in an earlier work, when I started researching, as Ashley said, most of my work is on um, the kind of everyday lived practice of Islamic law in, mm -hmm. in East Africa, now South Africa, I'm doing a new project there. Um, but yeah, so, so I, you know, but when, you know, when I, my kids, I started having kids, the kids were little, it's really, I mean, I have looked and to get the you know, the farthest part of the world from Western Nevada, Northern Carol Northern California area is really like East Africa, and which is where I've been worried. So it's, it's I could not have a farther field site from where I live. So I ended up starting to do a project in Utah. And my the first project I did actually, what I was trying to look at was understandings and understandings of marriage um, among women who had grown up in the church and outside of it in 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 Cache Valley, Utah, and how um so and kind of comparing their 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 understandings of marriage and what you know what what a marriage is, et cetera. And um I found that project, it was really interesting, but I was not the anthropologist to do that. It was just it was really it was really too close to home for me and it was mm. hard for me to do that project. So I ended up doing, you know, a conference paper two and one little short publication and a conference proceedings but then I I just couldn't I really had a hard time working on that project it was not right. something I wanted to pursue and so the the spirit project has been a lot a lot a lot better for me I, I really yeah. enjoyed working on this project and it was it was um yeah it was it's you know as an anthropologist a cultural anthropologist it's working in your own community can be very challenging. I mean, working anywhere can be really challenging, right? And I've now done both. I've done, you know, lots of work in East Africa in a cultural context that's very different from where I grew up. And then I've worked at home in my own community, granted with a different, you know, a religious community that I was not, you know, I was culturally part of the environment, but I was certainly not a member of the church. But it is, it, it has its own sets of challenges, definitely. Mm -hmm. I mean, logistically, it's easier, you know, it's easy to get there. When the kids were little, my parents could watch the kid, you know, built in babysitters and all of that. But it's it can be really hard kind of, you know, transitioning or trying to be both both a member of the community and a researcher and separating those is 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 kind of difficult. So it was mm -hmm. extremely hard for me to do that project on gender and marriage. Um, but working on the spirit project was actually a lot easier for me because. I didn't have, you know, I was not perceived as having any personal stake in it at all because everybody knew, you know, and if they didn't know me, you know, I, I did interview a lot of people I'd known um, before doing the project, but also lots of people I hadn't met before. And I'd always, you know, people knew that I wasn't part of the church. And so it was, it was, it was easier in that way because I could kind of come to it fresh without any, you know, any, anyone having assumptions about what my views on this were or, um, so yeah, it was, um, anyway, the challenges of working in your home community are, are, are worthy of discussion for all anthropologists, I think. Oh yeah, for sure. That was actually going, well, you, you just keep answering. Oh, really? Ahead. What yeah. was your, well, uh, tell me, what was your question? It was, yeah. I was going to say, since you were, uh, since you were, you know, researching in your, your, the community you, you grew up in, what kind of challenges did you actually, uh, face when talking to people, you know, or or who knew you or knew of you? Yeah, that's a that's yeah. I can say a little bit more about that. I think that's a really wonderful question. I think it was very beneficial in many ways because I, you know, having grown up in the community and knowing a fair amount already about certain Mormon teachings and practices, it gave me a head start, right? So I didn't have to kind of when people talk about baptizing for the dead. I mean, I'm very familiar with that is I, all my friends did it great. So I don't, I know what that, I have that, I have that kind of local knowledge as Clifford Gertz would say on, on some level. Um, so it kind of, I probably made the project go a little bit faster. So um, since I had grown up in that community and I was so familiar with it. So I think that 
I think it was really helpful in many ways. Um, it allowed me to do the project, I think, a little bit more quickly than another anthropologist who was, you know, not from Utah, who would have to go and really, you know, do the long term immersion, cultural immersion, and kind of learn the community norms in a way that I was already familiar. I mean, I was already familiar with a lot of that. So, so I think it was, I think it was it really quite helpful. I think, um, yeah, and I think that having that level, you know, as we always teach our students in Anth 101, you know, you cannot do field work without building rapport with the community and having a sense of mutual trust. And so I think that was relatively easy for me to do, again, because because, you know, when I was talking to people I knew, they knew who I was, they knew my sincere interest. I'm not, you know, not trying to like make people look silly or write an expose that, I mean, I think people were knew, absolutely knew, you know, about my respect for the religious tradition and my my love of the community and my, I really just want to understand, right? Um, so, and then people I didn't know, you know, there was always you know, not even six degrees of separation. There was always one to two degrees of separation, right? I mean, it's not a huge environment. My family's lived there for a really long time. So, you know, I have siblings, I have parents who are well-known in the community. So it's, so, so even if I didn't know someone personally, we always knew people, you know, and I always kind of, so, so it was, it, it was easier in that sense of not being a, I think it was easy in some sense not being an outsider. I was kind of, it was, I don't know, in some ways, maybe it was kind of ideal. I was an insider outsider, in a way that I think really benefited um, me in doing this project and made it made it a relatively, you know, straightforward process pursuing with this pro this project because I, you know, I have lots of connections in the community. Um, my, you know, and I, I, my family still is in Utah, so it's it's it's. I think it was very very helpful. Um, yeah, and then I think yeah, the challenges again. It's it is navigating that. Oh my, you know. Here, am I here as visiting my friends and family or am I here doing research? I mean, it's, that's a little bit, I think it's in some ways, I think that's really hard. And I, I, I tell my students who end up working in their home communities that it can be really difficult to kind of draw that line. And so, you know, my advice for students or anthrop other anthropologists who do end up working in their home communities is kind of, you know, I, I don't know, I think I, I, I like to structure things. So kind of structure things out is, okay, this is research and this is when I'm finishing research and so so you have that you kind of have those those boundaries and you're able to really think of yourself as a researcher and not not just I mean things wrong with being a community member but not just a community member so um I think I think that's that's helpful and I you know obviously I don't live there now so I live in Reno but um but kind of thinking about those those every time I would go do field work in Utah, thinking about that as a bound to say, okay, I'm here as a researcher now. Yes, I'm visiting my family. Yes, I'm seeing friends, but I'm really, I'm really need to think, put my anthropology hat on, like the hippo on your shirts, right? And think that <laughs> here I am to really do this, do this project as a researcher. Yep. I was gonna say you've got your anthropology hat and when you're wearing that, you, you you're in that mode. And then, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. yeah, but it can be really it can be hard, you know, mm -hmm. to remember that when you're when you're working in your home community, mm -hmm. I think. But I think there are a lot of benefits to doing it too. I mean, I think as you know, as probably most anthropologists would agree, I think there's there's huge benefits to working in a place that is not your home community and coming in with that outsider learn having to learn everything from scratch and there's also benefits to not having to do that so i think that i don't think one is the ideal model for an anthropologist i think both mm -hmm. there's 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 benefits to both and of course mm -hmm. difficulties and challenges with both well, it sounds like it was a very unique opportunity for you so mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm glad you got the chance to do it because it's definitely given me something to think about so Good. great I've got a, a pretty close friend who grew up Mormon here in California and yeah. um, uh, another friend who I went to school with who converted to Mormonism and mm -hmm. then moved out to Utah uh, and recently moved back. And the, the, the connection between both of them are actually friends as well. So the connection between that situation and this one is just they both seem to be struggling with um, their personal beliefs versus the things that they were taught in the um, the from the Book of Mormon, mm -hmm. not specifically what was actually said or what was written down in the books, but rather how their experience in their families kind of 
clashed with what they read in the book mm-hmm. right so and you know i'm just thinking this had nothing to do with spiritualism i gotta go and change it so i apologize that's okay but, um, i can i will have something to say i promise <laughs> <laughs> uh it just the they both like i said were have been struggling recently with their um viewpoints on mormonism and and have recently you know decided to while they're stepping back from mormonism Mm -hmm. they're stepping back into their religious studies and and going back into Mm -hmm. the the you know they're trying the last conversation i had with the two of them about it was they've been trying to rediscover what the value they found in it was when they were growing up okay right so you know i i I guess it was just a you know way to consider Well, I, can I make a comment on your comment? Absolutely. I think that wasn't a question. Yeah, so that is really, that's interesting. And I've, I think there are a lot of people in that, I mean, not certainly just with Mormonism, but who, mm-hmm. you know, once they grow up or have, a, you know, have questions about the faith tradition they were raised in. But one of the things, I don't know if, I know you guys aren't, um, the book is just barely out. So the paperback's not out yet. But in the last chapter, I don't know if anyone's gotten to that one yet, but the last the last mm-hmm. couple of chapters of the book, I talk about the evil spirits and mm-hmm. um, which are very different from the benevolent spirits. And in the final chapter, I talk about how people get rid of evil spirits. So, and it's not a situation like, you know, that you remember from your anthro class, it's about possession. That's uh, that very rarely happens. So evil spirits come and they threaten and they harass, but they, they don't really possess that often. So they're not taking over somebody's body. And so the, you know, the normal way when you ask people, well, how do you get rid of a spirit? People say, okay, well, you cast out a spirit. And so the person who does that needs to be a member of the priesthood. And so, the priesthood in the Mormon church is very different from how other Christians might use the term priest. So it's, it's only men and, you know, any boy over a certain age, I think it's 12, um, has been 12, I don't know if it's changed recently, um, but beca- who's in good standing can become a member of the priesthood. And then you can kind of advance through different levels of the priesthood. And so there are lots of, you know, there are lots of experiences with evil spirits that are you know, where somebody who is a priesthood holder comes and can cast out the evil spirit, comes haunting, you know, kind of, haunt. I mean, people don't usually term, use the term haunting that much, but I just kind of used it as, you know, someone's, an evil spirit is, is, is bothering people and needs to be cast out of a home or an apartment or something. And so a priesthood holder can come and do that through a fairly simple process. Um, but that is also a point of, that is a point of contestation uh, in terms of the gendered nature of the priesthood. So in the church in recent years, there have been some high profile, um, high profile figures, one of whom was excommunicated about five or six years ago, um, who was the the leader of a, mo- a movement called Ordained Women. So there's a, you know, a, a, for people who want women to be ordained as priests in the Mormon church. And um and one of the things that I noticed in talking about evil spirits and how you get rid of these evil spirits is that a lot of times people would t- talk to me about how they differentiated between, say, the institutional body of the church today and Mormon culture in Utah and how they re- recognize the true teachings of the church, right? Or the true church or the kind of the, 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 what the church really should be about. And this was often, people often did this in talking about gender. And so, um, so even so kind of the formal position is that, okay, in order to cast out a spirit, it really should be someone who holds the priesthood who would be, you know, a man who has, you know, reached a certain level or certain level of standing in the church or, or, or a teenage boy. Um, but ideally, you know, someone who has a higher level of the priesthood, but a lot of people point out the very important spiritual role of women in the early church. And so I had a lot of people who talked to me about, okay, well, the church today, the institutional body of the church today really emphasizes the kind of this hierarchical nature of a all-male priesthood. But in the past, women were very well known for exercising spiritual powers and not, not as formal holders of the priesthood, but were very able to do things like cast out spirits, et cetera. And so... So, so a lot of, you know, people are complex thinkers, right? And so a lot of, a, a, a lot of what I focus on in that chapter is how people kind of differentiate between the institutional body of the church today and the emphasis on, say, 
you know, the all male nature of the priesthood and, you know, men having these special, these special powers that are affiliated with the priesthood um, and what they regard as really the true church, right? Or the true meaning of the church, or the true teaching of the church, which has a more expansive view of spiritual power that includes women's spiritual power. So, um, so I think, yeah, in terms of your friends who are kind of wrestling with, 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 certain questions i think that's not at all uncommon and that's something that i i mean there's a lot more research to be done and there are other people who are certainly researching that but in terms of the spirit experiences i really saw that kind of coming to the fore when people are talking about how you handle these you know these negative experiences what you do when a bad spirit comes comes to harass and who can kind of cast out that spirit and who can't uh, and so and so often kind of contrasting that you know the early days of the church versus the kind of institutional body of the church today. I Absolutely. have more. I have more of a comment rather than a question. I do have a, one or two other questions, but that's more of a kind of wrap up the episode. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, I'm not Christian, um, but I mean, I was, and I mean, you know, I've read the Bible. Uh, it's been a while. I'm not gonna lie, um, but I found it very interest, very interesting when you start discussing. Uh, Mormonism and I mean really you just you start discussing like you talk about you know one third of spirits rejected the chance to have mortal mm -hmm. bodies and the war in heaven and this is something I had not heard of before mm -hmm. um right because when we think of like the fall of Lucifer um uh, or even in Islam when he didn't bow mm -hmm. to man was very different and mm -hmm. I was like why have I not been studying this like <laughs> like this is so interesting why yeah. because i just thought of it oh another christian sect but then i started reading about you know when you broke war in heaven i was like why have we not been talking about this more <laughs> like this is so interesting the differences in their yeah. in their in the way they view you know the fall of lucifer and stuff mm -hmm. but um it really did encourage me to want to go learn more um <laughs> and maybe answer my door sometimes somebody in black slacks knocks yeah. on it um <laughs> sure, yeah. have, a, have a conversation why not uh, right yeah um, but yes I just wanted to comment on that because I hadn't realized how different it was yeah it is I mean I think I'm glad you brought that up because that's really I mean that Mormon teachings about this war in heaven and that you know people were given the choice to either follow Jesus or follow Lucifer um, more commonly known as Satan, you know, I think in the book for the war in heaven, I say Lucifer and then elsewhere I say Satan, but that was a choice that those spirits made, right? And then the ones who chose to follow Lucifer were never, are never going to have a mortal body. So they're never going to be human and they're never going to need to move on to that path to salvation and so so in the book i look at you know the first half of the book looks at benevolent spirits and the second half of the book looks at malevolent spirits so the good spirits and the bad spirits and the good spirits are those who either have had a mortal body and have died or are going to be born as mortals um to human family and the bad spirits are only ones who follow lucifer and have never had a mortal body so that's i mean that in terms of how people think about spirits is a very very clear distinction the bad spirits only come from that third who followed lucifer and the good spirits only come from that two-third who had the mortal body so it's a very very clear distinction and people tend to know if they're having a spirit encounter it's, it's extremely obvious that if they're having a good spirit if that they're you know it's a good spirit or bad spirit so the good spirits really are almost always you know recognizable as an individual um and if the if the person who's being visited doesn't recognize them then the spirit will identify themselves so it's like you know spirit comes to you and i don't recognize the spirit and the spirit will say oh i'm i'm your third child that you need to have you know don't stop having kids now you need to have another kid because i'm <laughs> Jane and here I am and I'm waiting to be born so you know get working so but the malevolent spirits are never identified as individuals and they're not usually even they're very rarely described as you know with with is looking like anybody right so people will just kind of talk about them as a shadowy shape and I remember when I was a kid when people, the, I mean, the whole reason I did this project and the, the title of the book comes from just me remembering sometimes some of my girlfriends as kids saying, oh, the devil came in my room last night and sat on my bed. And I remember 
sometimes the devil was described as having glowing red eyes. And I didn't note, you know, I didn't really note that in when I was doing the research for the book and some of the older narratives, I saw that the red eye thing, but nobody who I interviewed for this project told me about the red eye. And it usually wasn't the, the evil spirit wasn't usually recognized as the devil per se, but as, you know, as an evil spirit. So maybe follower of, of Satan, but um, yeah, but that's, yeah, but that war in heaven story is really key to understanding where these spirits are coming from. As a small note on that, like, I think I remember the, I don't remember what chapter it was, but the the difference between good and evil spirits uh, portion, you you spoke about how there was a handshake test. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So the handshake test is very familiar that, you know, that you can, but I've no, I don't know anyone who's ever used the handshake because everybody not one, I've not talked to everybody's familiar with the handshake test um that that yeah so to differentiate the kind of spiritual being that's coming but I don't know anybody who's actually used the handshake test and so and I think that I mean nobody really offered an explanation of why like oh what because I think but I think you know it's it's really obvious when somebody has a spirit experience it's very obvious that okay this is the spirit of my deceased grandmother coming to comfort me at a time of stress or coming to help me with something, you know, something, or this is, you know, this menacing shadowy shape in the corner that's causing me to feel all kinds of horror. So it's usually really obvious. So I don't think you, you know, I don't know anybody who's actually tried the handshake test with the spirit of their, their grandma or, <laughs> or with a shadowy, scary shape in the corner. So, I mean, yeah. I feel like I mean, if you're seeing a shadowy shape, you're not gonna want to try it. Right, the so, Are you good or evil? <laughs> I, I have experienced sleep paralysis once, and there was the the sleep paralysis demon standing over and whatnot, and it kind of makes me wish that I had tried to shake its hand. It's like, <laughs> like it, obviously, I didn't want to at the time. That was terrifying, but uh, it's like you know, I mean. It could have been interesting. Could have been interesting. Of course, I couldn't move, so there was that. Yeah. <laughs> Growing up and hearing that you know your girlfriends had had the devil at their bed, did you ever like think as a child, like, oh God, I hope I don't have this experience? No, no, not at all. <laughs> and I think you know this is I I don't I don't think I say this in the book, but I've said this in interviews before. No, for me growing up, it was, I had, you know, I kind of categorized things as things Mormons do and things non-Mormons do or don't do. Right. And so I just saw this world and I think maybe I did say this a little bit in the, in the, in the first chapter of the book, but yeah, so no, not at all. It was just in that category of things that Mormons did. Like Mormons have devils. We don't have devils. You know, when in my church, in this little church, no one ever mentioned the devil or bad spirit. I mean, never, never. So, I mean, I, Maybe they did, but I really didn't pay that much attention. So, but no, it was not a part of, you know, being an Episcopalian that, that you had to worry about the devil so much. So, so I think it was just, it was, and the people, you know, my friend, I don't remember anyone being that concerned about this. It's just like, oh, this happened last night and whatever. Like, oh, okay, move on. But so no, never, not once, not once did I think that this would happen to me. And so I, you know, I don't remember even giving it that much thought at all, but I think I just kind of mentally categorized it. Okay. Mormons play piano and they have different things for dinner. And, you know, like they have more kids than we do and they have the devil. And so non-Mormons wear shorts and drive vanigans. And so it was just kind of like, that was, you know, I just kind of drink coffee and it was just, you know, I had my non-Mormon list of things and my Mormon list of things. And that was very firmly in the Mormon list of things. So no, I was never, not once did I think, was, was, I was never worried about the devil. I even, I was the devil for Halloween one year. I remember I had this awesome <laughs> costume. I had, I was, my mom had made me a little red riding hood cape one year. And so, which was very, so I was Little Red Riding Hood one year. And then the next year I wanted to be a devil. And so we got, you know, those like weird, like rubbery mask things. And so I got this, so I wore the Little Red Riding Hood cape and then I had this like rubbery devil mask. So. I'm just, I, I gotta say that the description of Mormon versus non-Mormon just struck me as something that was kind of really funny. Uh, they, <laughs> yeah, that. They play piano, they yes. have coffee, <laughs> they have the devil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Cool. I mean, I even think like placemats I had in the non-Mormon categories, like 
non-Mormons have placemats. I mean, it was just like <laughs> Mormons, Mormons sit at dinner without placemats, but non-Mormons use play. I mean, it was just all these, I'm just thinking back, like non-Mormons, you know, Mormon moms wear makeup and non-Mormon moms don't. I mean, it's just, and it was just because, you know, my mom didn't wear a lot of makeup. And so I just kind of assumed that was a non-Mormon, that non-Mormons don't wear makeup and, you know, and Mormon moms do wear makeup, non-Mormon moms mow the lawn and their cutoffs. <laughs> Maybe they're mowing the lawn, but they're definitely not wearing cutoffs. So, you know, it was, well, and it's just, you know, it was, it was, it was, yeah, just very, you know, that was my, my list of the Mormon things and the non-Mormon things. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to, I'm happy to be interviewed if anyone is doing a research project on that. So <laughs> it sounds interesting. Uh, so was there anything that during your uh, research that struck you as um, surprising? Um, you know, I think that's a great question. Yeah, I, a couple. Yeah, I think a couple of things. Um, one of them was the just the extent to which these things were happening, because, you know, I, I started researching this because I actually because I need to thank Liam Murphy, a professor at Sac State in the anthropology department, because he was doing this project he studies anthropology of Christianity and was doing this comparative project on conceptions of evil. And he'd asked me, he's like, hey, Aaron, do you know anybody or do you know anything about conceptions of evil in Mormonism or anybody who's working on that? And this is many years ago. And I said, I don't know much, but I did. But that sparked my memory of the devil stories. And so I have to give a shout out to Dr. Liam Murphy for um, kind of, you know, sparking that interest in this project. And so, but I think once I started researching it, I think I was, you know, delighted and surprised, but also delighted at just how common these stories were and how, you know, the evil spirit things definitely happened, but the benevolent spirit experiences were even more common. So that was one. And then the second thing is when I did some preliminary research, I did, as you know, from looking at the book, um, I did uh, ethnographic interviews, but also did work in the Utah State University Folklore Archive, which is absolutely fantastic. And when I first started reading narratives, because I started in the folklore archives, and then I started doing the ethnographic interviews, the first, you know, dozen or so narratives I read, I had this kind of working hypothesis that young women were more likely to be harassed by evil spirits, um, and that they, you know, had to, and so I, I thought there was going to be this major gender component where young women were harassed by the spirits and these, you know, male of the priesthood often older were the ones who'd come in and rescue them but that so I even wrote a little a little grant proposal with that as kind of a working hypothesis but not at all so once I started doing more research I mean that was why you know you do we train our cultural anthropology students and you know to do you know do a little pilot project first do a little preliminary study to see what the questions are and then you can come back and you can write your grant proposals and you can go out and kind of um uh, investigate those initial questions. And so this is kind of a, um, a little a, a miniature example of that. But I really thought that that was going to be a consistent theme. It, there was going to be this really gender dimension to experiences of the spirit world. And I think I, you know, I kind of had that assumption from reading these first few narratives, but also just because it is a religious tradition that has very stark gender differences. It is, you know, it is, there is a very, there are roles for women and there are roles for men. We talked about that a little bit with, you know, the contested nature of the priesthood. Um, but once I started, you know, doing, doing the research that, that little hypothesis did not hold at all. It was that women were no, like, no more likely to experience spirit harassment than men. I mean, one, one thing I did see is that young people were more likely to be harassed by evil spirits than old people, but women certainly no more likely than, than, than men. I do have a random question that's not very serious. Um, do you have people ever mentioned like having, like as us, especially, let's start this over. That's okay. <laughs> so really random question not very serious but i wonder if people ever like are like oh my dead dog that passed away two years ago visit me no that is a, i think it's a great question <laughs> that is a great question and no i've never heard anybody discuss an animal that but that is i think that's a super interesting question ashley i would be really i would be 
yeah, I'd be excited to hear about that. But that's no, I have never heard anybody talk about an animal um, coming back to visit. But I think that, um, you know, I think that, yeah, and I think, I think that, you know, the reason it would be a completely different, it'd be, it'd be fascinating and it'd be really different because, you know, this, the reason that people, humans can come back is because they are, they have, they are spirit children of God, right? And they are progressing on this path to salvation. And so I think if someone had the spirit of an animal come back, it'd be a super interesting theological question to investigate anthropologically, right? So, you know, anthropologists are not theologians, though there is one, actually, there's one really interesting anthropologist who, of Mormonism who's also a theologian. So, but that's a really unusual combination. But anthropologists, we we do kind of like to study theology and practice, right? I mean, that's one of the things we do as as anthropologists. This, I love this phrase that um, my dissertation advisor, John Bowen, uses, and I've also heard other or read other anthropologists using it, the social life of scriptures, right? So as anthropologists, we are interested in scripture, sure, but not as scripture on its own. We're interested in the social life of scripture. So how so scripture is interpreted by people who use it every day, right? And another another term that we use, I use it in the book to describe one woman who um, I interviewed a few times, who I call Lynn in the book, but I refer to her once or twice as a lay theologian. So she is, you know, she's not a formal you know, she's not a member of the priesthood and isn't, you know, formally trained as a, as a theologian. Sorry, I have a dog here. He knows that we're talking about <laughs> guarding the spirits of animals. But yeah, but so, so as anthropologists, we're sure interested in those kinds of questions, right? In terms of how, you know, the social life, how scripture is interpreted and, and often interpreted differently in every religious tradition. It's always a point of contestation, right? And discussion and debate. Um, and then also this, this question of lay theology, like how people who are not, you know, either leaders and leaders or trained theologians or whatever, how they are interpreting these, these, these sources and these, and these really, um, these important questions. And so I think that, that, you know, if somebody said they had a spiritual encounter with a deceased pet, I mean, there you go, basically what that person is indicating is, okay, so the dog has a spirit, right? And the dog has a spirit that is part of the spirit world and can interact. So um, that is a super interesting question. No, I've never ha heard that happen, but if it did, I think it would be, it would be, I would really <laughs> like to talk to that person. So yeah, it's a great question, Ashley. I asked because I have like, um, I had a pet that passed away like over a year ago and he still comes in my dreams. I just mm. think it's like my guilt. Like if he feels real, like I can even yeah. feel it, feel that that's probably because my cat's laying on me while <laughs> I sleep. But um, I think that has more to do with my guilt of not being there when he passed away. I'm still like holding on to that. Oh, um, but it does feel real when he's there. And well, like, other people experience this. <laughs> no, well, I think that that's another interesting um, point is that one of the things, you know, in this, in the book, I don't differentiate between people who are visited in dreams and people who are visited while they're awake. And the reason I don't is because that is not important. So I've never, it's not important to people who have these spirit encounters, you know, they can come in your dreams and they can come in your, when you're awake. And so, you know, people sometimes do have the spirit encounters in their dreams and they're not differentiated as less significant, right? It's not, oh, it was just a dream. So um, usually people don't, have any question that you know a spirit visit is a spirit visit so I grew up having very very vivid dreams mm -hmm. to the point where it's just like you know um there there are some dreams that just feel like reality and some mm -hmm. dreams that don't and I can see how somebody might make a, or take a dream like that and say well this was different this has to be and, mm -hmm. you know not trying to say that it you know not trying to take away anything from the significance of it but I can see easily how somebody might distinguish something like that as a specific visit or event that's significant to them from their culture yeah sure definitely that's yeah I think that's you know looking at the significance of dreams across cultures is really really fascinating there's this anthropologist of Islam Amir Mittermeier who 
research it. I cite her a few times in the book, but she studied um she studies Islam in Egypt and she talks, she works with Sufis who are part of the Islamic mystical tradition, as Ashley knows. And Les, I don't know if you studied Islam at all. I can't remember. Um, but so she's she looks at special dreams. So what she refers to as special dreams in the Sufi community. So and how and their significance. So yeah, dreams are dreams, looking at dreams across culturally and across different religious traditions is really, really fascinating. But yeah, they 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 absolutely can have great significance in, in different contexts, definitely. That's a, yeah, definitely super, mm -hmm. super interesting area. It'd be super interesting to teach a class on that, wouldn't it? So, hmm. Oh yeah, I would take that class. Go for it. Let's do it. Dreams across cultures, <laughs> would you take that? Okay. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That would be, I'll think about that. That would be a great class, I think. Yeah. You guys are giving um, me really good ideas. <laughs> Go hey, for it. <laughs> if you if you write a book on it, we'll we'll review that one too. I'm Excellent. Saying, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you did mention you mentioned this earlier, and then you mentioned it in your book about you know people who weren't Mormon telling you about your spiritual experiences and how you may be considering doing something with that later on. So is that something you're seriously considering? <laughs> the back burner uh yeah so I've right now I've I'm def I'm back in the law mode so I've you know <laughs> kind of whiplash from working on the spirit experiences to now I'm back working on Islam and law in Africa so yeah I just got back from a short trip to Cape Town where I was assessing the feasibility of a project on 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 inheritance disputes over inherit in inherit in regarding inheritance and inheritance law so so yeah I think I think I would like to come back to the spirit experiences at some point in some fashion that's that's a little idea percolating can you percolating on the back burner I guess that could that's not really a mixed metaphor but yeah it's possible <laughs> it's possible I don't have any immediate plans to do that but I think um the next couple of years I'll be back in the Islam and law um world and then after that we'll we'll see um i wanted to uh step away from the book a little bit now you typically study islamic law and in this book you study uh spiritualism and mormon utah i mean in regards to your grad students what are when when you're choosing students to work with what are the types of research working on or yeah. interests they might have when they're applying yeah. That's a great question, Ashley. So for, for for especially for PhD students, usually we really want to bring in students who we can advise effectively. So they should be working on something that I feel like I can advise them well on. So so most of my students, I think actually, I think all of my students are working on anthropology of religion, either in Christianity or Islam. So right now I have a student who is studying um, a student who's just about to finish her dissertation on, and she's she has done research in central Utah with a self-described fundamentalist Latter-day Saint community, and she's looking at issues of um, they are they are they practice polygamy, and that's not the main focus of her research, but it's part of it. Um, but she was kind of drawn to the topic because of her interest in 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 polygamy. But she's looking at ideas of religion and healing in that community, and and some other and 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 certain uh, questions relevant to kinship. I have another student who's doing his fieldwork in Japan right now on Muslim migrants from mostly Southeast Asia, also South Asia to Japan, really great project there and how they're kind of navigating that um, that uh, being a Muslim minority and um, in Japanese context. And I have a student who's working on, um, she's working in South Carolina with um, an Irish traveler community. And one of the things she's looking at is, she's actually my student who's quite interested in law as well. And she's looking at, um, at conceptions of marriage and practices surrounding marriage in the Irish traveler community, especially as traveler marriage practices either intersect with or differentiate from South Carolina laws of marriage. Um, so, but yeah, so most of my, but she's also interested in, 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 in questions of uh, Catholicism and Irish traveler Catholicism. So, so normally when I want to bring PhD students in, I'm looking for students who are working in 
either have an interest in usually in religion or law or both. And, um, and I feel, you know, I, you sh I, I can advise students working on anthropology of Islam, certainly also anthropology of Christianity. I'd consider other projects as well, but normally we want for the student's benefit, you want to have a PhD advisor who really knows quite a bit about your topic. If you're it's, it can be very difficult if you're choosing a PhD topic that your advisor doesn't know anything about, if you're not being well served, um, it's it just makes your path harder. So so when we, you know, we're pretty particular about the PhD. With master's, I'm a little bit more flexible. Um, I had a student do a wonderful MA project on, he did his work on a Shinto community, a Shinto shrine outside of outside of Seattle. And I am certainly not an expert in Shinto at all, um, or, but, he, you know, but he, it was in the anthropology of religion and was wonderful for a master's project. For a PhD, we want to be pretty, for the students, you know, benefit, we want to be pretty closely, um, we want to be pretty knowledgeable about what they're working on. The reason I ask is because, you know, you were my advisor at Sac State and my first BA, and then, you know, uh, you were there at Reno when I was <laughs> in Reno, and yeah. although in Reno, I was a bio and student, yeah. and I was reading the book, and I I was like, I don't know what any of her students are doing. <laughs> oh yeah, those are yeah, those are my current PhDs. And then I have two master's students who are ones working on doing really interesting work on an LGBTQ plus affirming Protestant community co congregation in Reno. Did great field work with that community, and then another one who did research on. Um, on Sufis in Senegal. So yeah, all of them are working hmm. on religion. Then I have a couple, hopefully a couple coming in next year. One who actually wants to work, my first student who's interested in Judaism. So will be joining the program next fall, I hope, if all goes according to plan, but she wants to study um, issues regarding American Jewish identity. So that's not an area of expertise, but I have a, an interest in, and in actually did an undergrad certificate in, in Judaic studies uh, to complement my anthro major. So, um, I'm excited about working with her and then possibly another student who wants to work at the intersections of religion and healing. So those, those are the students. All right. Thank you again, Dr. Stiles for coming on the show with us. Um, once again, her book is the devil sat on my bed encounters with the spirit world in Mormon Utah. And we look forward to what you have coming up next. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And for those of us, for those of you watching, please don't forget to like and subscribe on our YouTube channel. And you can find us at www.anthropotamus.com as well uh, as on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.